Planning a family in the year 2023 comes with numerous options, so how best to plan yours? Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Jane Nanny, a reproductive endocrinologist and medical director of Fertility Centers of Illinois third-party program, as we examine family building options using an egg or sperm. This is the Time to Talk Fertility podcast. I'm your host, Deborah Howell. Dr. Nanny, it is so nice to have you with us today. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Just lovely. Okay, first of all, who is a good candidate for using a sperm or egg donor? Well, generally, we require sperm donation for couples where the male partner has very poor sperm counts. You know, we always judge the sperm in terms of the overall number of sperm and also what we refer to as the motility or progressive movement of the sperm, you know, and something called morphology. And sometimes we have gentlemen who have almost no sperm in the ejaculate. Now, often, you know, we consider sperm donation in these cases unless they are a candidate for having their sperm extracted. And those are sometimes the situations where they might have an obstruction, let's say, in the, what we call the vas deferens. They might make sperm that can be retrieved. But otherwise, if, if there's a, what we call a no sperm and there's no obstruction, then we're almost always inclined to use a sperm donor. So that's very common with men with very poor sperm samples. We have to resort to sperm donation. There are some men that have what we call congenital absence of the vas deferens, and those people also are candidates for sperm donation. And of course, we have same-sex female couples that are unable to conceive without sperm donation. So these are the two major categories for sperm. Men who have very, very poor sperm and are not candidates for sperm retrieval or have no vas deferens, and also same-sex female couples that are just missing male partners, they, they resort to sperm donation. Now, can using a donor increase the success rates of getting pregnant for those struggling to conceive using their own eggs or sperm? Yes, you know, in, in particular, you know, when we talk about sperm donation, and this is also true of egg donation, these are, of course, human products, not altogether unlike blood products. We talk about that's human tissue, you know, from the blood, you know, eggs and sperm are all what we call gametes from the human. And of course, because it's human tissue, we do have to be comply with what we refer to as the FDA standards regarding transfer of human tissue. So that is something that happens in, you know, general with fertility clinics. We have to comply to the standards from the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that requires that, on, particularly with sperm donation, that these sperm donors be screened. And, of course, they definitely get screened for infectious diseases, but they also get screened for various genetic carrier diseases, and they get screened in part for their fertility as well. So one of, the, one of the ways that we can utilize sperm donation is by going to these FDA-compliant sperm banks. And they're, you know, they've been doing this for many, many years when freezing sperm. So again, when you know, couples go to choosing a sperm donor, often it's overwhelming because there's such a variety of donors out there you know, across the country. Some of the bigger banks are on the West Coast and on the East Coast, et cetera, et cetera. So again, sperm banks are very common. And the ones that really do comply are only the ones that we tend to work with. You know, They have to comply to these FDA standards. Sure. Now, what's the difference between using fresh or frozen, and does it vary for eggs versus sperm? Uh, it does a great deal. You know, we think about, particularly with sperm donation, the overwhelming majority are using frozen sperm because these are readily available from sperm banks. Now, we have the ability also to do what we think of as fresh donations, but these are normally what we call known cases. In fact, the terms I should clarify, we always traditionally used anonymous 
and known, you know, when it came to donor sperm or donor egg, anonymous versus known. But now we think of it as directed if it's a known case, a known donor, or identified versus unidentified. Identified links to what we think of as anonymous tissue donation. You don't know that individual. But again, with the fresh samples, almost always those are identified donors. And again, they do some of the same screening that we do with the traditional sperm donation, but there are some rules that are more lax because these are known cases. Got it. Now, you mentioned these sperm banks. So what's the process for choosing an egg or a sperm donor? Well, there are two different banks generally, although sometimes they can concur. But usually the sperm banks and the egg banks have websites. And the easiest thing to start deciphering who you might choose as either a sperm or an egg donor is to get on the website. They have the most recent updates on the list of potential donors. And that's the first thing to do, to start looking at the whole variety of donors that might be present. And almost always there are these sort tabs. You can you know, screen and filter for certain ethnicities, races, and things like this. And so that's the thing that we usually recommend people do, get onto these websites and start to take a look. Because as I say, it can be quite overwhelming, all the variety of people that are out there that you might be able to choose from in terms of donation, donated eggs or sperm. Okay, got it. Now, can you tell us about Fertility Centers of Illinois Egg Donor Database and what makes it unique? Yeah, you know, because we do in-house donation, and this is also very interesting. Traditionally, we've only been able to do fresh, even though we have sperm donors that are frozen, we've only been able to do, up until quite recently, we've been able to use fresh donors that go through retrieval, and then, you know, we use the couple's, what we call the intended parent that that's sperm to fertilize the eggs. Now, that has traditionally always been fresh, fresh eggs. However, since 2013, we no longer call it experimental to use frozen eggs. So now, not only do we have sperm banking, but we now have egg banking. And that's been since around, it started to come alive back in 2013 when it came off the experimental list for doing egg freezing. So now we have egg banking as well as we have sperm banking. And particularly in FCI, well, I think what is unique about our particular donors, and these are all fresh donors that go on our website, and often some of these donors will contribute to the egg banks as well. But the idea, again, is that these are particular donors that go through a very rigorous review of records. We call it a summary of records, particularly looking at their family history. We are very, very particular about our donors. We carefully screen the history of the person, including their family history, they definitely go through the same idea as in blood products, the FDA risk factor questionnaire. We look at them again in terms of their infectious diseases, in terms of their genetic carrier risks, and we very much have standards for who we think are going to be good donors based on their fertility potential. So they get a very rigorous screening. They get a psychological screening as well. So these donors, they go through a lot of testing even before they get up on our website. And again, we also look at them carefully as they go through donation cycles. In other words, we have a standard. If we see that one cycle might fail an individual, we might do one more time. And if that, you know, and usually we get a success or a live birth. And if they had two in a row, then we take them off the list, you know. So we're very discerning with who we accept onto the program, the donor program. And we carefully look at them as they go through treatment as well. I just love your passion and your enthusiasm. And congratulations on being able to offer both fresh and frozen now. That's wonderful. Thank you. Now, if someone wants a friend or family member to be their donor, do they still need to go through a screening process? Well, that's a very good question, Deborah. And, and again, as I mentioned, when we talk about these particular cases, these are what we think of as known or identified, directed, known, identified 
donors. So that's not uncommon. We do quite a bit of that. Often couples will pick a relative. You know, relative, let's say, is an egg donor. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But again, we do that quite commonly. And they do get screened in addition for like particularly the infectious diseases. But if someone is not looking like somebody might be a carrier for a genetic disorder, if it's an, you know, a recessive genetic disorder, we just have to, we can be more lax and screen the intended parent, the sperm source, and make sure that they're not a carrier. And, you know, so we have things that like that that we can do to make sure it's still safe. But there is a little more leeway with these because an individual recipient couple could say, well, even though we usually have our donors up to age 32, the couple might want to choose a relative that's 34. Yes, we can proceed with that if, if that's their choice. So we do have a lot more leeway with directed donors for sure. Now, you spoke to this a little bit earlier, but let's revisit. Can you search for donors with specific traits? Now, that's a very, very good question. We generally think of things like eye color and hair color as sort of multifactorial. But as you know, there are traits in families. So again, when couples are choosing donors, as I mentioned, they can discern you know, on the website for egg donor or sperm donor, they can choose couples that have a certain ethnic background or racial background or hair color, eye color. So they can choose these. Now, even though they might, they get pictures, of course, so they can see, and many of them will try and choose a donor that kind of looks like people in their family, I would say. That's the most common thing. People that are similar in skin or hair or eye color. And even though they choose this individual, it's not always 100%, by the way, that they get this child perhaps that has blue eyes, for example, because that is, it can be multifactorial. But I think a lot of the couples will go ahead and choose someone. They try to pick specific traits. It's not 100%, because again, there's some variability when it comes to actual, what we think multifactorial when it comes to eye color, hair color. Some is passed down, some is not, some skips a generation, et cetera. Correct. Okay. Now, if someone wants two or more children born from the same donor or donors, is that possible? Absolutely. We often have couples, particularly I think of it very common with same-sex women who might have used a sperm donor and have a live birth. We tell them at the beginning, you might want to order several more vials of that particular donor because if they have success and have a live birth, they'd often want to have a sibling. So again, so they it depends on the actual sperm donor, but usually we suggest they take or look for a donor who might have several vials and maybe even to purchase them right out front because they can stay in the freezer until they want to use them. And the same is true with the donor egg. Now, I would say when it comes to donor egg, most of the donors have a very nice yield when it comes to retrieval and many, many embryos can get created. And so we maybe only transfer one embryo and they have a live birth and they'll have embryos in the freezer and often they come back and choose a sibling, you know, that to transfer. So that's very common. Right. And what are the legal considerations for using a donor? We are in a state in Illinois where we, it is legal to use sperm donation, egg donation, and gestational surrogacy. Now, of course, when we are talking about, again, the unidentified or anonymous donors, particularly with egg donation, the egg donor herself will have legal counsel, and also the recipient couple has a legal counsel. In other words, there's a, there are what we call reproductive attorneys with, who, with whom we work that will definitely take care of these cases. And they're very adept and have lots of experience with these, what we call the reproductive endocrine cases where people are using donor gametes and they do have to come to a legal agreement that the particular donor will not come back and try and perhaps manipulate the situation in any way. So there is a legal thing that they do, especially, again, with these unidentified or anonymous donors. Now, with it, 
within no no they don't have to they just don't have legal recourse as much because they know the individual i'm imagining that emotional support services would be very very wonderful for some of these couples women men are those support services available for those looking to use a donor Absolutely. In fact, we mandate it really that they should be counseled with our psychology team. And we have several people that work with us that are clinical psychologists. All the donors, by the way, are in-house egg donors, go through a personality test and personality screening and speak with a what we call a psychologist who is adept in this field. So again, they're specific I would say psychologists who work with these sorts of cases. And I think it helps them to understand. I think one of the things, it's not a medical thing that the psychologists talk to them about, but from talking with them, I think it's nice for the couple who is using either donor egg or even donor sperm to entertain these questions that the psychologist brings up. Often it comes down to when the child is born, let's say, and the child is of sufficient age, what do you tell your child about the way they or how they became, how they were created? You know, so these are the kind of questions I think that the psychologists do bring up with these individual couples. And yeah, they're readily available here for sure. And then, of course, for the family and maybe for the child who is born this way, are there counseling services for them? Well, I, I would say that we don't have a call for that here, you know, because we don't take care of, we're not a pediatric clinic, but for the couple, we could continue to talk with them, but we don't see individual children here. This is all fascinating. I have one last question. How long can these frozen eggs and sperm remain in the freezer before they become not viable? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. We have now do what we call no longer this, what we think of as the slow freezing method. And there was problems with that. But on more recent years and over the last 12, 15 years now, we don't do that. We do what's called embryo vitrification, egg vitrification. And it's a way that these can stay frozen for many, many, many years. So I would say a minimum 10 years. Wow. But normally people are using their frozen, not always, but normally they're using them prior to keeping them in the freezer for 10 years. If they do keep them in the freezer long term, there's long term storage that's available, but it could be costly too. Understood. Is there anything else you'd like to add for our listeners to know? Well, I would just say that I think we're in a certain age, 2023, where we have so many resources for couples who are struggling with infertility. And of course, some of the time it does require either a sperm donor or an egg donor. And even so, we have many, many more options than we ever had before, because only since around 2013, 10 years or so, have we been able to offer frozen oocytes or eggs, for example. So I think it's nice to have all of this technology that has advanced to the point where we have not only sperm banks, but egg banks. So it's very exciting. Absolutely. Wonderful information, Dr. Nanny. Thanks so much for being with us today to share your expertise. Well, thank you, Deborah. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for all the work you do. That was Dr. Jane Nanny, a reproductive endocrinologist and medical director of Fertility Centers of Illinois Third Party Program. You can schedule an appointment to talk to a fertility specialist at 877-324-4483 or visit fcionline.com for more information. And if you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more like it in our podcast library. And be sure to give us a like and a follow if you do. This has been the Time to Talk Fertility podcast. I'm your host, Deborah Howell. Have yourself a terrific day.